0: Father, thank you today for your word and we ask that you would just open our eyes and our heart and our spirit that we might uh, hear what the Holy Spirit would say to our lives and we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name, amen. Maybe I'll pray again. Well, just uh, a welcome to you all, new, old, and in between. We have been uh, working through the book of Ecclesiastes. Solomon has been reflecting on his life. I would think it would be safe to say that he's writing this book basically near the end. After starting strong with God, he seems to be finishing weak. And uh, no doubt that his many wives and concubines were idol worshipers, which brought Solomon to his lowest state. It's pretty easy to make a connection there that relationships are probably one of the most powerful and influential factors in our life. And uh, the relationships that we have in our life can uh, can, uh, influence us for God or uh, they can uh, move us from God. So thankfully, God has laid out in his word how to navigate these critical choices of how to choose uh, our relationships. And I would encourage every mom and dad that is here to sit down with your kids if they are teachable. That's the big thing and talk deeply about God's wisdom concerning relationships. And I would hasten to say that there's a few reasons why that we should do that. One, you have to realize that the choices that you make not only affect you personally, but they affect your whole family. Everyone has to live with your decision. Secondly, What type of example are you setting for your family, for your brothers, your sisters, your siblings? You need to realize that all of us and you have the power of influence. And thirdly, and most importantly, is can you trust God? Perhaps a better way to think about it is, is, what is God like to you? Is he mean? Is he unfair? Is he unreasonable? Or is he good, trustworthy, and a bringer of joy? Does he always bring the best purposes all the time for our highest good? Because if you can't really answer that question with an affirmative yes, then probably your relationship question is going to be rather off kilter. So uh, Solomon uh, started well, uh, but he isn't finishing well. And so as we are in chapter 3, which I thought we would go through a couple months ago, uh, he started out in verse 1 with basically this great saying, vanity, vanity, all is vanity. And uh, he started to look at life, and he was looking at the emptiness of things as they go around in circles. But Solomon is too wise to leave his assumptions unchallenged. And so basically in chapter 3, he begins to talk about uh, challenging the assumptions that he is making about life. First of all, in verses 1 to 8, Solomon began to look at this so-called vanity under the sun by looking up. And he said in verse 1, to everything there is a season and a time for every purpose under the sun. In other words, Solomon is saying life has meaning and purpose because God has ordained our times. He has created us and he holds us in his hand, and he is sovereign over time. Secondly, last week, in verses 9 to 15, Solomon looked within, and he said in verse 11, he has made everything beautiful in its time, and he has put eternity in our hearts. People know intuitively that there is a continuation of life after our mortal existence is over. It's called eternity, and Solomon basically is saying is that that gives purpose to our lives under the sun. That this is not just a random chance that we are here, but that we have a purpose, we have a plan, we have a creator, and therefore we instinctively know that eternity is something that is real. And at the end of it, he said, so fear God, but enjoy your life. Now today, starting at verse 16 of chapter 3, going to the end of the chapter and into chapter 4 up to verse 3, we come to his third argument against basically all being vanity. And it is basically saying, look ahead. So read a few verses with me, starting at verse 16. Moreover, I saw under the sun, in the place of judgment, wickedness was there. And in the place of righteousness, iniquity was there. I said in my heart, God shall judge the righteous and the wicked. For there is a time there for every purpose and for every work. I said in my heart concerning the condition of the sons of men, God tests them that they may see that they themselves are like animals. For what happens to the sons of men also happens to animals. One thing befalls them, as one dies, so dies the other. Surely they all have one breath. Surely they all have one breath. Man has no advantage over animals, for all is vanity. All go to one place. They All are from the dust, and all return to dust. Who knows the spirit of the sons of men, which goes upward, and the spirit of the animal, which goes down to the earth? So I perceive that there is nothing better than uh, than that a man should rejoice in his own works, for that is his heritage. Who can bring him to see what will happen after him? Then I returned and considered all the oppression that is done under the sun. And look, the tears of the oppressed, for they have no comforter. And on the side of their oppressors there is power, but they have no comforter. Therefore I praise the dead who are already dead more than the living who are still alive. Yet better than both is he who never existed, he who has not seen the evil work that is done under the sun. Well, well, well. When Sandy and I Pick a movie to watch at home. And let's be clear, I only include myself as a courtesy because it really doesn't matter what I want to watch. It's what Sandy wants to watch, but we get to pick it together. The movie, to have any chance of being viewed by the Baldwins, must have a few minimum requirements that must be met. What's the first one, Sandy? Sandy? It must have a happy ending. (laughs) Yes, it does. The first thing Sandy will ask me about a movie is, does it have a happy ending? I go, I don't know, I haven't watched it. (laughs) If there is no happy ending, there's a very good chance that movie will not be watched in our home. Therefore, I have memorized most of Pride and Prejudice, Sense and Sensibility, and Emma by heart. (laughs) But, to be fair, I like those movies. Disney has made billions off of following that formula. Happy Endings. Cinderella gets to marry the prince, live in a castle, and the evil stepmom, Gal, throw in a few dwarves, same ending. <laughs> Beauty and the beast, different girl. Caston gets toasted, beast turns into a prince, curse is broken, they live in a renovated castle, and they live happily ever after. And you could go down the line. Bad guy gets justice, good people get rewarded. We like the conclusion because in us, we like that good people get good things and that bad things happen to bad people. They get justice and so we go to bed happy the end. It's very neat, very tidy, the world is as it should be. And the reason why we like these movies, the reason why I like the equalizer with Denzel Washington, is because Denzel gives the bad guys what for? He equalizes. He whops them. And I like that. It appeals to my innate desire for justice. Justice is a term for what is right or as it should be. And as Solomon looks at life under the sun, he observes that not everything is as it should be. As a matter of fact, he says in verse 16, Moreover, I saw under the sun, meaning on this earth, in the place of judgment, wickedness was there. And in the place of righteousness, iniquity was there. And then chapter 4, verse 1 And then I returned and considered all the oppression that is done under the sun. And look, the tears of the oppressed. But they have no comforter. On the side of their oppressors, there is power. But they have no comforter. What is Solomon saying? He's saying, as I look at the affairs under the sun on this world, he says, I see injustice and oppression abounding all around. As a matter of fact, he said, things are so upside down that the tables are so turned that good is called evil and evil is called good. Injustice is called justice and true justice is called injustice. What should be evident and normal is perverted and distorted and it's causing him a great amount of pain. Do you know that we have a justice radar built into our consciences? Do you know why? Because God put it there. Hey, that's not fair. Whether they are kids on the playground, whether it's people in court or politicians in parliament, Everybody wants justice. Hey, that's not fair. To which people in power say, says who? Fairness is a virtue we all intuitively prize. We want life stories to have tidy endings, where all accounts are paid in full and all offenders are justly punished. There is something that is wrenching and jarring to us to have the wicked turn out winners in the end. Solomon saw that it was not only lacking, but it was perverted, totally askew as how God designed it to operate. God was very forthright when he gave the law and when he repeated it again in Deuteronomy he basically said your judges and your rulers shall not pervert my word they shall not accept bribes they shall not pervert the course of justice the problem here is that the place of justice has now become unjust the very place that we expect and most need to receive justice turns out to be a place of unfairness. Even the court system is corrupt. And this is not merely a frustration with Solomon, like some of the other problems we read about in Ecclesiastes, but this is a manifestation of genuine evil. Innocent people are being convicted for crimes they have never committed, while the guilty are walking away free. The preacher's frustration is not simply that injustice is done, but that it goes unpunished. Martin Luther, looking at this passage, said, Solomon is not complaining because there is wickedness in the place of justice, but because the wickedness in the place of justice cannot be corrected. When the halls of justice become corridors of corruption, what can the righteous do? Where can the righteous be found? So Solomon states two things in verses 16 and 17. In 16, he has the observation of injustice, but in verse 17, he consoles himself with the declaration of judgment. He said in verse 17, I said in my heart, God shall judge the righteous and the wicked. You can take that to the bank. God will judge the righteous and the wicked. And he says, for there is a time there for every purpose and for every work. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. The teacher's initial response to the lack of godly justice was a declaration to himself. He said in verse 17, in my heart. I said in my heart. He knows that God, intuitively he knows that God, not the courts, will one day have the last word condemnation of the wicked or the guilty and the vindication of the righteous, that is the innocent, will take place in God's appointed time. Here divine justice is very tightly linked to the theme, the previous theme in chapter 3 verses 1 to 8, where God says there's a time for everything. And though it doesn't necessarily say righteousness and justice and judgment, we know from reading the Bible that there will be a time where wickedness spreads and there will be a time when wickedness is judged and righteousness prevails. Now, if you're an atheist or an agnostic, you have a dilemma. And here's the dilemma. Where does justice get rendered for the wicked if there is no God? Ask anyone about the last hundred years, the 20th century alone. The leaders that murdered countless millions upon millions upon millions in their view or in their pursuit of their vision of justice or a just society. People like Adolf Hitler in the Third Reich. The gulags of the communists under Lenin and Trotsky and ultimately Stalin. Chairman Mao and his little red book. The killing fields of Cambodia under Pol Pot and the Rouge. The terrorists of ISIS and anybody else that you'd like to throw in there. Where does justice get rendered for them if there is no God? A lot of people who don't believe in God contradict themselves because I hear them all the time saying, well, they'll get what's coming to them. Not without God, they won't. They won. They repressed justice, they murdered, they tortured. They exiled any threats and denied basic human dignity and freedom to people who didn't believe in their creed or their religion or their dogma. And then they died in their lavish palaces. No Disney movie here, no happy endings. That's not fair. And then people who don't believe say, oh yeah, well what about karma? What what does the Bible say about karma? karma is not christian it's not a theological concept found in the bible it's actually found in the teachings of buddha and hindu religions it's the idea that how you live your life here will determine the quality of life that you will have in a concept they call reincarnation if you are unselfish kind and holy during this lifetime You will be rewarded by being reincarnated or reborn into a new earthly body, into a more pleasant life. However, if you've lived a selfish and evil life, you'll be reincarnated into a less than pleasant lifestyle. In other words, your karma will catch up to you. Karma is based upon the theological belief in reincarnation. The Bible does not teach reincarnation. Therefore, it does not uh, accept or support the idea of karma. The Bible very clearly says in Hebrews 9.27, it is appointed unto men to die how many times? How many? And then what happens after that? judgment. You're not coming back as an ant, an ape, a poodle, a butterfly. There's one life, and then after that life, we are going to face judgment, the Bible says. (coughs) The Bible... embarrassing. Karma. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, just checking to see if you're on your toes. The Bible makes clear two important points for Christians that negate the possibility of reincarnation and karma. First, It states that we are destined to die once, meaning that humans are only born once and only die once unless you have been born twice, physically and spiritually. Donker Shane, my gazelle. And secondly, it states that after death we face judgment, meaning there are no second chances. There is no reincarnation to live a better life. You get one shot at life to live it according to God's plan, and that's it. Now, the Bible does talk a lot about reaping and sowing. Job 4.8 says, As I have observed, those who plow evil and those who sow trouble reap it. If you're like me, once you sow it, you pray for crop failure. Psalm 126.5 says, Those who sow in tears will reap with songs of joy. In each of these instances as well as other references to reaping and sowing, the act of receiving the rewards of your actions takes place in this life, not in some future life. The Bible is very clear. It is either eternal suffering in hell, according to Jesus, Matthew 25, 46, or eternal life in heaven with Jesus, who died so that we might live eternally with him. That is the biblical underpinning of justice. Justice is always based upon the cross. And we always must remember that it was Jesus who suffered the injustice of men's sin. He was tried six times, three by secular courts, three by the religious courts... Every trial that he had totally violated every principle of fairness, and yet the Lord laid down his life for undeserving people who were lost in sin so that we might be accepted by the shed blood of Jesus and that we might be forgiven and we might have eternal life with him. If anyone knows about injustice it's the Lord Jesus Christ he suffered the injustice of all injustices he who knew no sin became sin for us he who never had to die for sin died for all sinners the Apostle Paul wrote in Galatians 6 8 and 9 the one who sows to please his sinful nature, from that nature will reap destruction. The one who sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit, will reap eternal life. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time, we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. It's like Disney. In the end, the good guys win. Why? Because Jesus has won. We must always remember that it was Jesus whose death on the cross resulted in us reaping eternal life. If life was fair, everyone would go to hell. You want fairness? Prepare for hell. Why? Because the Bible basically says, the soul that sinneth shall die. So, God ignored fairness and satisfied his justice by taking our sin and putting it upon his son. That is a pretty good deal. Finally, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 tells us, For by grace you've been saved through faith. Not, this is not from yourselves. It's the gift of God. He doesn't want anybody boasting. God did it all. All he says is, here's the door. Walk through it and receive it. So the conclusion of the matter is, our confidence does not lie in a justice system but in the chief justice himself, Jesus Christ. God has promised a day when his son will judge the righteous and the wicked. The time for his work of divine retribution is called the day of judgment, when he will render his final verdict on all mankind. This truth is taught throughout the Bible. In Genesis 18... When Abraham was pleading with God about Lot and his family and Sodom and Gomorrah, and he basically started with saying, Are you going to destroy those cities if I could find 50 righteous people there? And then he said, What about 45? What about 40? How about 30? How about 20? How about 10? For the sake of ten, God said, I will not destroy that city. But then he says, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? One of the things that you and I can be confident, absolutely confident in, is that the judge who will render final verdict will do right by every person. There's not one person that's going to stand before the Lord and say, I think you got it wrong. Beg your pardon, God, I'd like to make my case now. Solomon, at the end of this book, in Ecclesiastes 12:14, basically says, God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. And then Solomon makes an observation about people in verse 18. He says, concerning the he's, I said in my heart, he's having a conversation with himself. Concerning the condition of the sons of men, God tests them that they may see that they themselves are like animals. Interesting statement. As Solomon looks at the perversion of justice, and he sees all of the tables turned upside down, where people are calling evil good and good evil, light darkness and darkness light. Solomon says concerning the condition of the sons of men, God tests them. In other words, God gives them ample time to reflect and see what their hearts are really like. And he says that they may see that they themselves are like animals. He doesn't say they are animals, right? Cats are cats, dogs are dogs, buffaloes are buffaloes. We are human beings, but we can act like animals. And we hear that every day on the news. What are these people doing? They're acting like animals. We hear it all the time. Are they saying that there's a bunch of cats running around? No, what they're saying is they are acting like animals void of moral responsibility and reason. He says, for what happens to the sons of men also happens to animals. One thing befalls them. As one dies, so dies the other. Surely they all have one breath. Man has no advantage over the animals, for all his vanity. All go to one place, all are from the dust, and all return to dust. Who knows the spirit of sons of men which go upward and the spirit of the animal which goes down to the earth? Solomon is saying that our present existence is a proving ground. It's a test, not simply in, in the sense of something we pass or fail, but in the sense of something that demonstrates our true character. And one of the purposes of life is to examine and ultimately to reveal our place in the universe and our true relationship to God. The test is not for God's benefit, as if there's anything he doesn't know already, but for our benefit that we learn to recognize our mortality and that we see ourselves for who we really are. You know what is offensive about the cross and the gospel it forces people to see themselves for who they really are hopeless lost sinners with nothing to plead their case except the mercy of god and what jesus has done on the cross it offends people are you saying aunt sally and uncle harry who lived exemplary lives are burning in hell Were they born again? Jesus said, unless you're born again, you can't see the kingdom of heaven. The Bible says we're not saved by any works that we can do. We're saved by grace alone. And all we can do is cast ourselves upon his mercy and say, God, here I am, helpless. But to you I flee, and to you I cling. Nothing in myself I bring. Nothing that I can offer to you. Isaiah said the same thing. Man's righteous works are like filthy rags before him. And so the cross offends people. Trust me. I'm on the golf course talking with guys all the time. It's hilarious. If I had a dollar for every time I hit a good shot, and they said, how can you beat God? I'd be retired, I'm sure. The other day, I was pl- I've been a pastor here for 19 years. Oh, oh and uh, where's that at? Calvary Chapel, Kelowna. Oh, yeah, yeah, and where do you meet? Uh, we meet at the Kelowna Christian High School in Benvolen. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, me and God, we don't really agree together. I have some things I'd like to talk to him about. Knock yourself out. He's listening. As if somehow the righteousness of his cause, the disappointment that he's going to share with me, somehow is going to convince God, I'm a pretty good guy. That's at the root of that conversation, right? The preacher's point is that people die. He's not commenting on biology. He's commenting on our destiny. Animals die, we die, life dies. For all the differences between us, we share this one thing in common. Whether man or beast, we will all meet the same fate, at least to to the regard of our physical bodies. In verses 2 and 3 of chapter 4, he puts it this way, Therefore I praise the dead who are already dead more than the living who are still alive. Yet better than both is he who never existed, who has not seen the evil work that is done under the sun. What is he saying? He's saying, when I observe the injustice and the oppression that is under the sun, it's almost as if those who had never existed or those who have died wouldn't have to bear with this anymore. So what's the conclusion of the matter? you know the great thing about preaching through the Bible is you touch on every subject and there is no subject that is more in the news than justice if you watch any news any news you basically can take this to the bank because everything is based upon justice every newscast is about how unfair life is to a special interest group. The problem with that is is that everything now is based upon our wants rather than what God says is actually just and true. Pastor John MacArthur and... I don't agree with John MacArthur on everything, so for those of you that, you know, you don't need to email me. I understand where John is coming from. He wrote an article called The Injustice of Social Justice, September 7th, 2018. The Bible, he said, has much to say about justice. In the English Standard Version of the Bible, the word is used more than 130 times. It is never preceded by an adjective except in Ezekiel eighteen eight, where it speaks of true justice. It is occasionally pa- paired with possessive pronouns, where God himself speaks of my justice, twice in Scripture. Twice in prayers addressed to God, we read the expression, your justice. But the point is, is there are no different flavors of justice. There is only true justice, defined by God himself and always in accord with his character. Justice in scripture is often paired with the words equity and righteousness. Equity means treatment, equal treatment for everybody under the law. Righteousness signifies that which is consistent with the demands of God's law, which includes punishment for evildoers, obedience to governing authorities, penalties that fit the crime and are applied without partiality, and a strong work ethic enforced by the principle that able-bodied people who refuse to work shouldn't benefit from public charity. 1 Thessalonians 4.11 and 2 Thessalonians 3.10. So here's the question that everybody's asking. I want justice. Do you want justice today? Say yay. Who wants justice today? Nobody. Great. Well, if you want justice, can I ask you a few questions? Where should we start? Well, if you asked 50% of the people in the United States, they'd say, let's start at the White House and lynch Trump. That'd be a good start. The other 50 would say, well, let's lynch Hillary Clinton. So we no longer have the United States, we have the fractured states. All based upon a perception of justice. Who's right? Where should we start? Better yet, where should we end? Well, let's start with all of the bad people in the world. Okay, let's start with them. Let's wipe out ISIS. They're gone. I've waved my Dale wand. They're toast. And then let's start with all of the people in Africa that are taking children. And they're turning them into warriors and killing machines. They're bad people. You're gone. And down and down the line, now we've come to Canada. Okay, We've taken care of everybody else's problem because that's how justice works. I want justice for them. I don't want justice necessarily for moi. So we come to Canada, first thing we do is get rid of Trudeau. He's gone. Okay, that's just my own personal opinion. (laughs) Maybe you'd get rid of somebody else and that's fine. See, what I'm trying to, to, to say is, is that when you leave God out of the equation, justice becomes very arbitrary. It's not based upon righteousness, it's based upon wants. Okay, what about you? What about the things that you've done in your life? What should we do about you? I mean, if we're really going to have justice in this world, what are we going to do about your problems? And then we come to the rub. Don't you know who I am? I'm Pastor Dale Baldwin. I preach the gospel. Oh, yeah, I've had a few miscaps at home and a few things that nobody in the church ever sees me doing. But God sees it all. What's God going to do with me? You want to get rid of evil? You got to get rid of everybody. You know why? Because the Bible says that All have sinned, and in the heart of every one of us is a wild beast that can only be tamed by the work of the cross. Who would be left standing, and what would be left? Let me ask you today, would you be standing? Would you be left? If you are, you'd be the only one. So enjoy the world. It's your apple. We all instinctively know that for justice to prevail, it will have to be at a time in God's future where there is a time where he will make all things right. The good will be rewarded according to their relationship with Jesus Christ and the wicked who have rejected him will be punished. I think Samuel Butler captured the age when he said, and Samuel Butler lived a long time ago, he said, justice is my being allowed to do whatever I like. Injustice is whatever prevents my doing so. In other words, we want justice for everyone else, but not for my indiscretion. Biblical justice starts with Christ and the cross. It turns our hearts and our minds from things above to the things, from the things on this earth. It's the promise of forgiveness for hopeless sinners. It tells us, That we are not hapless victims of other people's misdeeds, but we are responsible to see our hopeless condition and that Christ has been sent to remedy it. George Savell said, Justice must tame whom mercy cannot win. What will it be for you this morning? Will it be mercy or will it be justice? I pray that somehow, in some small way, that your heart has been touched to realize that Jesus is the end. He is the solution. He is the healer. He is the forgiver. He is the savior. And if you haven't ever considered that and opened your heart to him, today I pray that you would. So let's pray. Father, this morning we thank you for your word. That Lord, your justice, the just punishment for sin, has been met and paid for Through the blood of our righteous Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And that those who flee to Him for refuge, that Jesus has taken our penalty. If there is anybody here today that would want to open their heart to this incredible invitation pray just a simple prayer, Lord I am so glad that you paid in full my debt I realize that I am a hopeless sinner and that if I continue along this line that one day I'll get justice instead Lord I flee I come and I ask for mercy and I thank you that you love me so much that you would shed your blood for me Forgive me, Lord. Cleanse me of my sin. Come and live in my heart and my life and take control of me and I will follow you for the rest of my life. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. For those of you that have had experiences in your life where you just realize that justice has not prevailed, Why don't you give it over to the Lord? Why don't you let the Lord take that burden? Allow him to deal with those hurts, to forgive, to let the bitterness, the unforgiveness go, to know that the Lord will be able to take it all and work it out. You don't have to carry that anymore. So, Lord, today we give to you every situation and every burden, every heartache, every transgression that lives so fresh in our minds and our hearts. And and today, Lord, thank you that you are able to carry that for me. I let it go that just as you forgave me when I had no right, so, Lord, you forgive those who have trespassed against me. I lay it at your feet. and I ask you to free me, to let me go, Lord, this day, as I walk, Lord, after you. In Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. Let's stand and worship the Lord. the conclusion of today we're obviously having soup Sunday what what we'd like you to do is uh, we will stack some of the chairs we'll move it to the side but uh, other chairs we're going to move in circles so when you get your soup and your bread come on back into this room pick a circle that you'd like to sit down in have some soup get to know some people and uh, if it's possible we'd like to keep everybody in this room because we just want to tell you a little bit about ourselves and we'd like you all to hear about it so great thank you continue